Welcome and thank you for taking the time to listen to the Word of God released through Randolph Barnwell. Randolph is the founder and senior elder of Gate Ministries Durban Central. Be encouraged to access free additional resources for your edification at randolphbonnell.com. Great grace, peace, and mercy from Christ be multiplied to you as you listen to this teaching. Today is session six in the series that we're doing on fasting. And it's been a tremendously encouraging series um, up to now. Amen? Hasn't it? I really uh, just feel so enthused, so encouraged to um, really fulfill um, the will of the Lord on a much more significant level than ever before. And I want to encourage you that God is preparing us for something significant. Amen? God is really preparing us for something significant. And I want to encourage you that uh, these teachings are prompted by the Lord for us in this season, at this time. And um, it's imperative for all of us to really lock into the word of the Lord as it's released. Um, And while the heading is fasting, what you're going to find in the series is there'll be a whole lot of sub-themes or principles on a a, a range of issues that God may challenge and provoke you concerning. That's what I've discovered even with my own life. Primarily, my, my desire for prayer has been really deepened. And I'm sure that's been the same with you. Amen? Do you find that your prayer life is growing? Yes or no? Amen? I want to encourage you to become a people of prayer. And uh, prayer for me is the most powerful expression of apostolic warfare. It's, and you'll see it in, demonstrated in the life of Nehemiah tonight. Prayer is done in secret according to Matthew. When you pray, do not be like the publicans, for they love to pray, standing in the corners of streets, Jesus said, so that they might be seen of men. But when you pray, go into your closet and pray in secret to your Father who is in secret. Your Father who sees in secret will reward you openly. Everyone say secret. Repeat after me. The secret to prayer is to pray in secret. Um. It's the, it's the hidden life. We love the public life. People love to be seen. And we give emphasis and attention to our public appearance. But prayer is often neglected because it's a realm where no one sees or where no one should see. But only you have an audience with God, your Father. And I want to encourage you that private, personal prayer life of ours is going to become all the more important as the age closes. Prayer is the last pillar of apostolic culture that's going to be restored to apostolic communities. They continued steadfastly in apostles' doctrine, fellowship, breaking of bread, and prayers, Acts 2.42. In apostolic communities, the first three have been powerfully restored. I believe this last pig is going to be restored with fasting And it's going to bring such power and impetus to the move of God. I feel like so powerful when I stand before God privately and I pray to Him. I couldn't sleep last night because of Ben, my cat. Mm, That cat. That's a wayward son. His name is Ben, which means son. (laughs) 
And then after two or three disturbances, which Renee normally tends to, but now that she's out of commission, with her back issue, I have to be up. And so after the second time, just couldn't fall asleep. So I decided to pray, and I prayed in my uh, room, uh, TV room, just praying before the Lord. It's amazing, the sense of, um, I don't know, it's almost difficult to, to describe in words, to have an audience with Father, to pray to your Father who sees in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you openly. It's nothing you can parade before men, it's your private life, it's your secret world. But it's going to be the reason for all of your public success. If you cannot excel in prayer privately, don't expect, don't expect outward public success. And I want to encourage you, it's important that we give attention to the issue of prayer. Everyone say private prayer. I've been encouraging you in the, in the fasting series to pray with fasting. To pray with fasting. We've looked at um, four case studies in the series thus far, of men and women that prayed powerfully, fervently, after being convinced about some aspect of God's will in the heavens. They had prophetic understanding of what God's will was. What they, what they did, being armed with that knowledge, is they submitted themselves to a process of prayer with fasting to see, to ensure, to facilitate, to push and fast track that that which was revealed will surely be done. It's not that they need to help God by praying that the thing He wants to do must be done. They understand the principle that God will do nothing even though He's intended it to do except He find men on the earth to partner with Him in prayer. To pray, Thy will be done on earth as it is done in the heavens. A great man of God once said, God does nothing except in answer to prayer. God will do nothing except someone perceives the will, knows his intention, and prophetically will pray it through. Amen? So we've looked at Jesus' example. Um, we looked at Daniel's case study. Uh, last week we looked at Anna and Hannah. Anna served God with prayers and fastings in the temple. Hannah was barren, and her fasting and prayer broke the barrenness, produced a son, that changed the corporate state of the nation of, of Israel. Right? A signal and end of the period of the judges, instituted the monarchy, brought back order and the, the law of God as the absolute standard by which Israel would regulate their lives. The fasting was private, Hannah's was. The prayer was personal. It was private in the temple before Eli the priest, mumbling in deep sorrow, it was a personal need, but the, the God answering a personal need had a dramatic, widespread corporate effect upon a whole nation. God is calling this church, I believe, to stop focusing on your needs, what you need, what we will eat, mostly, what we will drink, and what we will wear. Matthew 6. But seek ye first the kingdom of God, and all these things will be added to you. I'm going to prophesy to us. There's going to come a level of provision. That's not, you are not going to access it when you see others enjoying it. Because you haven't prioritized the things that others are prioritizing. 
Right? The portion that was read from Haggai was powerful today. God says, if you, if you, if you, act, if you, if you prioritize the rebuilding of my house over your paneled house, then God says you will experience an abundance and a prosperity that I will bring. But if you don't, then your substance will be wasted by the Lord. If you don't seek as a priority first, everyone say first. First indicates priority. If you don't prioritize God's kingdom first, you're going to negate and push away from you the resultant effect, which is all these things. What things? What you shall eat, what you shall drink, what you shall wear. All these things will be added to you. As the age closes, kingdom issues are going to become more paramount over and above our personal concerns. And it's going to be the the people of God that have broken out of their personal, private, sometimes hemmed-in circumstances that sometimes so beset us, either personally as an individual or us as one man. Issues around this church, if we're only fasting and praying for issues around as a man, as a corporate being, around our own local church, and we don't tap into what is God saying to the bluff, what is God saying to Durban, what is God saying to our corporate household, uh, that we belong to, that's headed by Apostle Tamo Naidu? What about issues that pervade the, the clan? We are clan. I use the term very deliberately. We're not a tribe yet. We are clan, a group of families scattered all over the earth that we belong to. How about fasting and praying for issues relative to that group? That for me will be an expression of seeking first the kingdom. It's issues way beyond what your personal concerns. Right? And all these things will be added to, to you. Amen? And I want to encourage you to start to demonstrate this as a priority towards your kids. Right? The things that you disesteem in life, you must not expect your kids to prioritize when they are adults. The things you place little value of before your children in life, do not expect great miracles when they are old to suddenly those things become their greatest priority. The things that you give precedence to as a parent before your children, those things become the legacy and life of your children when they are adults. They will not learn things that you say. They will learn 90% of what they see modeled before them. Children learn more by modeling than by lecture. Right? They learn by observing. Right? And so there are certain things I don't have to teach Luke because he sees them modeled in my life. There are certain things you will never ever need a Bible study of. Hmm? What if I can demonstrate to him, for example, this is a simple example. Some of you, some of your, some of your teenage children know of people that have hurt you. How about, for example, if Luke is aware of someone that hurt me, and if I can demonstrate to him how I forgive so easily, he will never ever have to sit in some church and need a Bible study on forgiveness. The Word has become flesh, and it has dwelt with him. Right? He's now seen it in action. He's a standard by which to, by which to live. Amen. Similarly, with your fasting and your praying, I want to encourage all the adults. Let's pray more. 
Do you know Jesus taught prayer? Yes, he did. Matthew 6, remember the disciple says, teach us to, to pray. And he, he started a discourse on prayer with him. But he taught prayer more by example than by instruction. You know why I know this? Often, he would say, and he went a little way and he would pray. He would always pray in, in sight of, of the disciples. He would always pray in hearing distance of them. He taught them to pray by modeling prayer. How did Judas know where to find him to betray him? Judas knew he would be in a garden praying. Right? And I want to encourage you, um, teach your children some critical spiritual values and lessons by modeling these things before them. Demonstrate to your children how it is to fast. Model it to them. Show them we are a house that seeks God by prayer and fasting. There are some houses where food is the order of the day and fasting is never ever done. Hmm? But don't say amen. <laughs> and the children never ever grow up with what is it? What is it to withhold food from yourself? Because spiritual desire and hunger is so intense and you have to desist from these things and, and, and give yourself to prayer and fasting. I want to encourage you, model this before your kids. Amen? Amen. I'm getting a bit sidetracked. Let's get to the study. Amen? The fifth case study is Nehemiah. Let me give you some background. Um, Israel was in Babylonian captivity, at least Judah was, for 70 years. And they were released in three installments, three waves, three groups, over a period of time, back to Jerusalem. The, the decree of Cyrus initiated this. Um, Zerubbabel was the leader of one group, Ezra, the scribe, the leader of the other, and Nehemiah, the leader of the third. The books of Nehemiah, Ezra, Haggai, which we read tonight, and Zechariah. All these men were contemporaries living in the same time period. Right? Ezra was the priest or the scribe. Nehemiah was an apostolic type. Zerubbabel himself was an apostolic figure. Haggai and Zechariah were prophets. So you have prophets working alongside apostles in the time of the restoration of Israel to Jerusalem after 70 years of Babylonian captivity. So I want to encourage you, those of you who are Bible students, if ever you are studying the book of Nehemiah, you cannot study it on its own. It must be studied in tandem with the book of Ezra and together with the prophetic writings of Haggai and Zechariah. Because Haggai and Zechariah are prophesying in the same context where these apostolic figures are working. Ezra's focus was the rebuilding of the temple. Nehemiah's focus was the rebuilding of the walls. He was serving as the king's cupbearer in Babylon. And now, obviously, there were two ready installments of people going back. And so one day, he inquired from a cousin of his, how is, how is the state in Jerusalem after people have gone back? How are things there in Zion? What is the state of Jerusalem? Now, we know that Jerusalem is the depiction of who? Us, the, the church. 
Revelation clearly teaches that the new Jerusalem is a bride. And who is the bride? The body is the bride of Christ. Revelation also teaches that the new Jerusalem is a descending reality, comes out from God in heaven, descends to the earth. So whenever I speak of Jerusalem tonight, it's symbolic of the, the church. Okay? Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. Remember those scriptures? Right? Pray for the peace of, of the church. The church is a representation of Jerusalem. The news that he hears distresses him because they tell him that the walls are broken and the gates are burned with fire. The people are in great distress and there is reproach. Reproach means disgrace, embarrassment, tendant with the Jews at Jerusalem. Look at it, Nehemiah 1 verse 4. He hears the report. The report is walls broken, gates burned, people in distress, people in disgrace, people in reproach. His response, when I heard these words... I sat down, I wept, I mourned for days, exactly four months, if you know the book. This took four months of prayer. I wept, I mourned for for days, and I was in fasting and praying before the God of heaven. I won't go to the details of the book because of time. It's a fascinating narrative. Nehemiah is. He asks permission from the king for a leave of absence from his task as the king's cupbearer to go back to Jerusalem to rebuild its its walls. Everyone say rebuild. When we do Isaiah 58 in a week or two, it's the principal Old Testament chapter regarding fasting. In there, one of the promises of the one who fasts accurately is this, verse 13. Isaiah 58, verse 13 says, Those from among you will rebuild the ancient ruins. You will raise up the age-old foundations. And you will be called the repairer of the breach, the restorer of streets in which to dwell. Notice all the R's, rebuild, raise up. Repair, restore. All those are apostolic terms. Everyone say rebuild. So what Nehemiah actually went and he rebuilt the walls, the physical external walls surrounding the city. Right? But rebuilding, building, restoration, repairing are all apostolic functions. The apostolic concerns the restoration of the church in both its belief and its function to what God predetermined. So God originally had a design for the church, how the church should be composed, constituted, how it should express itself, and what function it should fulfill. The church deviated from that path and went into error in both belief and behavior, in both doctrine and function. Apostles see this. They're like building inspectors in the spirit. They come to a church and they see your building is out of line. They put the plumb line. Remember Zechariah chapter 4 prophesies the plumb line, Zechariah says, is in the hand of Zerubbabel, the first apostle. Prophet prophesying to an apostle. Zechariah, uh, uh, Zerubbabel, the plumb line is in your hand. What do plumb lines do? 
for those of you who are building knowledge, they check the perpendicularity of the wall, is it? The straightness or the, the uprightness, the accuracy of the building. It says the plumb line is in the hand of this apostle, Zerubbabel. What are you? Prophesize, O great mountain. But before Zerubbabel, you will become a plain, not by might, not by power, but by my spirit, declares the Lord, with shouts of grace, grace to it. Will the mountain, which is an obstacle, preventing Zerubbabel from finishing the task, will be obliterated with deluge, downloads of grace, grace. Not by might, not by power, but by my spirit, declares the, by my spirit declares the Lord. And let me just say this. Today there is a plumb line. God is, taking, is checking whether the building is plumb. Okay? Whether you're, and let me just say this, not just the church, corporately. Because very often when we think of the apostolic reformation, yes, we do think of re, re, re correcting church structure on a corporate scale. But who is the church? Come on, who is the church? You are the church. And I think I'm speaking by the Spirit tonight. I see in the Spirit, not part of my notes, but I see in the Spirit the plumb line in the hand of the Lord. He's coming to check your life and say, is this right? Is that principle in place? Is your life circumspect? Are you upright in certain areas? Is your life plumb? Is there accuracy before the Lord? Right? It's an apostle that comes in. It's an apostolic frequency now, I'm not necessarily an apostle, but I'm apostolic in my thinking and in my mindset. Apostles and prophets come to expose the error of the house, either corporately or you privately. And not for embarrassment, but for correction. Whatever God exposes, He chooses to heal. In fact, He, he reveals to heal, they say. Amen? And I want to encourage you, God's about to restore that which is dysfunctional in your own personal building process. You know what Nehemiah did? If you read it, he lands there in Jerusalem to see this personally. And he's distressed. I don't know how long it took him. He has a personal inspection of the wall. He walks around it. He's assessing the rebuilding cost, the rebuilding plans that God has given him by the Spirit. And I sense that in, in the Spirit you know, apostles and prophets come in to restore the house of God to what it should be. Amen? Aren't we an apostolic prophetic church? Yes. I tell you, some of you, and I've heard this being, 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 being said, some of us say that so proudly. Hey, we're apostolic prophetic. The shoulders even go back. Hey, apostolic prophetic. But what are you saying? You are not only saying that we are the first to be judged. We are the first to be judged so that by our standard, others could be judged. That's what you are saying. You are saying, I'm ready for, for the plumb line to be put here first so that I can become the standard of obedience. 2 Corinthians chapter 10 says, we must perfect our obedience so that God can judge all other disobedience when our obedience becomes perfected or complete. 
You know, I sense it so seriously tonight. God is saying, I want to perfect your obedience. I sense the love of the Father for this house. I really do. Some of you have known grace and you've known long-suffering. The patience, the loving kindness of the Lord in our lives. It's an expression of His heart towards us. But often He comes in to correct. I want to encourage us, let us not abuse the grace of God. But this is a time for such circumspection, rectitude, rightness, accuracy, like never before. I'm scared of God. I know we don't like to talk like this. God is a consuming fire. I fear Him. I love Him. It's not a negative psychological fear that I have. I'm not talking about that kind of fear. But there's a deep reverence I have for Him now that I'd never even have before when I'm, I'm scared, fearful to violate principles after I've received revelation of the truth. Amen? And Nehemiah is this apostle. Let me just say this. Everyone say rebel again. Um, look at your last paragraph, just for the sake of the tape, because you will not be the only ones listening to this message, so I want to cover some stuff so that there's understanding wherever this goes. Nehemiah is an apostolic type in the Old Covenant. Apostles are foundational to the building of the church, which has Christ as its cornerstone. Ephesians 2.20 clearly says, That the church is built upon what? It's built upon the foundation of apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. They are not the foundation. Christ is the foundation. Paul would later say that as a wise master builder. Who's Paul? An apostle. He says, I'm a wise master builder. I have laid the foundation. Who is Christ, and no other foundation can any man lay than that which is already laid, which is Christ. Right? But apostles are foundational together with prophets to the building of the church in that they have the grace and the technology to build principles into the life and fabric of the church that are accurately representative of Christ himself. Christ is their focus. They come into a place and they see There's no representation of Christ in both doctrine or behavior. They seek to correct it at its fundamental, at its foundational level. You know the most important part to any building is its its foundation. Whenever you think of the apostolic, you always think building. Paul says, according to the grace of God given to me, as a wise master builder. The Greek word is architecton. A wise master builder. Building in the Spirit, I have laid the foundation. They are also given mysteries, apostles and prophets. Listen carefully, church. Ephesians 3.5 says that the mysteries of God are given to who? Not to pastors, not to evangelists, not to teachers. The mysteries, that which is hidden, it says the prophet and the apostle have the grace of to unlock it. All a teacher would do, like myself, I regard myself as a teacher in the kingdom, a teacher will come in and ensure that people at grassroots level understand the mysteries decoded by apostles. Right? So this can, that they can live this out practically 
in their life. That's why it's so important, no matter what your fivefold gifting is, you must remain plugged in and connected to a pure, authentic, apostolic, prophetic stream. And aren't we privileged for the stream we have? Amen? And the decoding of mysteries come. And um, I regard myself more as the Ezra. Um, it's like a scribal grace where you come in and you decode it and apply it, amplify it, consolidate it further and further. Amen? So I want to encourage you um, that this, we are an apostolic prophetic house and we are called, listen carefully, to be builders in the Spirit. Right now you should all have hard hats on. Right? Builders in the Spirit. Amen? Get your hands dirty. Do the work of the ministry. Hallelujah. Amen. So I think enough on that. I don't want to go too much. In a way, wherever there is error, what do they do? They always break down to rebuild. Right? Right at the bottom of your page there, the last paragraph, this involves breaking in order to rebuild, uprooting in order to replant, erroneous positions, which the church has adopted for generations, will be corrected. Every ruin will be rebuilt. Timeless, eternal, spiritual foundations will be raised up. Every breach will be repaired. Every street will be restored. Amen? So do you understand the character of the house you belong to? Amen? Tell your neighbor this is a building house. Tell someone this is a rebuilding house. If we are going to be used by God in this capacity, we must make certain that what we build here locally is, is accurate. Amen? Now, let's look at a few factors. Nehemiah is informed that the gates are, are burned, the walls are broken, People are in distress and reproach. And he humbles himself with fasting and he prays. He sits down, he weeps, he mourns. And he consults God on the matter. I want to raise a few issues that should be borne out in your own heart also. Listen to me carefully. How do you react when you see the walls of the church broken? When you see its gates burned with, with fire? Look at Nehemiah chapter 1, verse 2 and 3. Hanani, one of my brothers, and some of the men from Judah came. I asked them concerning the Jews who had escaped and had survived the captivity. About Jerusalem, they said to me, the remnant there in the province who survived the captivity are in great distress and reproach. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are burned with, with fire. What do walls represent around cities in that economy. It was protection, essentially. Walls were the primary means of protection against foreign enemy threats. So when he hears walls broken down, he knows the city is vulnerable. Right? He knows they are at great risk. Now please, brethren, the walls for us today represent Principles of obedience to God's word. Those are our walls today. Right? If you break the hedge, John says, if you break the hedge, what happens? The snake will, will bite you. Right? If you breach 
if you make a breach in the wall, if you give the enemy legitimate grounds to attack you by your disobedience, you give him leverage. That's why the scripture says, give no opportunity for the, for the enemy. Do not give him a, a foothold. For me, every time I obey, in the spirit, my wall is upright. I have protection and I have immunity. But every time I violate the scriptures and I disobey, essentially I'm making myself vulnerable and open to an enemy attack. And in your note, I allude to the height and thickness of walls in Old Testament cities. And the more uh, consolidated and, and, and consistent, serious you become in your practical personal obedience, the greater the strength of your personal wall in the spirit. Amen? And I want to encourage you. You see, he was concerned, he was inquiring about a natural circumstance, the natural city in a specific epoch of time. This was a specific historical moment in time. But I'm inquiring after you in the spirit. How is it with my brothers? How is it with that family? How is it with your life? How are my brothers doing? Right? And I sincerely hope the report is the walls are broken down. You see, it says the gates are burned with fire. Where do gates hang? On walls. You've got no walls. Automatically, you've got no gates. What do gates represent? We have a long study on lift up your heads, oh, he gates. But primarily, they represent issues of governance and authority and power in the spirit. Right? They represent legislative authority in the realm of the spirit. Gate do. I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Gates of hell are indication of the, the legal power and authority of hell will not overpower the church. So gates speak of your authority in the spirit. If your walls are broken, you've got no authority. If your obedience is lacking, you've got no authority in the realm of the spirit. Romans teaches this. To whomever you healed yourself to, in obedience, you become the slave of. Right? If it's to sin, you become the slave of sin, and sin becomes your master. Paul talks in the book of Romans. But he says, heal yourself as instruments of righteousness. Your healedness and levels of obedience in your personal life is your authorization in the realm of the Spirit. There's simply no shortcuts. I'll say it again. You can lift up your voice all you want to and sound powerful. In the spirit realm, it will mean nothing. This is a very serious point. If you go out and you disobey God's law, you violate God's ways, um, you, you flagrant about serious spiritual things, about morality and otherwise, about practical righteousness, what you're doing, you're breaking your walls down and you've got no place to hang gates. Right? And then... When you're confronted by an issue, we have to take your ground and your authority in the realm of the Spirit. You find that you're powerless because your obedience is waning. Amen? Nehemiah confronted this practical situation. But you know, when I think of this, I too sit down. I weep and I pray with fasting for groups, for individuals and for families. When I see the walls are broken down and when I see the gates are burned with fire. It's a serious thing. 
the heading for this first fact here is personal concern for the welfare of the church. When last, now please, brethren, be honest. I'm not talking about praying and fasting for your private needs. You need a thousand rand, let's go on a fast. I'm not talking about that. Ah, that, that for me, it's, ah, that's kindergarten. Fasting 101. Right? You haven't even started climbing the ladder. When last did the state of your brother's soul burden you that you could not continue with life as usual? You see, you had a very important task here. Serving the king, all the beverages. He was the king's cupbearer. The king even noted his sadness. He came into the king's presence. And you know, to do that was death. You don't come before Babylonian or Persian king sad. Even if you're having a bad day, you come smiling. King, here's your wine. This, but his grief, the intensity to which, uh, uh, about which he felt about the situation, so, so gripped this man. He says, when I considered Jerusalem, the church, I sat, couldn't function as usual. I wept, I mourned for many days. This man prayed for four months. And his prayer was laced and immersed himself with, with fasting. And he prays a prayer which I will read shortly. He consults God about the matter. Some of us are so fixated with our own issues that we neglect our brothers. There was two questions God asked mankind in the book of Genesis. The first was, Adam, where are you? Question number one. The second question God ever asked another human being was, where is your brother? When you lose yourself, you can't locate your brother. Where are you? If you've lost your spiritual place, then your brother becomes less of a priority. Two questions. Adam, where are you? Was it Abel? Cain. Cain, where is your brother? His question is, am I my brother's keeper? Becoming your brother's keeper must be more than a principle that we espouse. It must become a practical, practical living experience. Right? You are, tell your neighbor, you are your brother's keeper. I know this might be difficult for some of you, because some of you are saying now, but hey, I've got so much issues and personal needs right now, now I must start fasting and praying for somebody else. My answer is Yes. For in doing so, you demonstrate your own maturity. You know, the greatest admirable thing for me is when someone in the vortex of their own trial can focus on somebody else's need and pray for that instead of their own. Hmm? Nehemiah said, I sat, I wept for many days with fasting. He exhibited personal concern, listen carefully, for the corporate state of the church. We've transitioned from more roads to here. The transition has not been easy for many people. For many people. But how many of us have exhibited true concern for other members of our family? It soon tells you whether we just say we believe in the church as the family of God or whether on the ground we truly are family. Hmm? 
I guarantee you, if it was one of your biological associations, your natural family, it would concern you greatly. But don't we teach that who is my brother? Who is my sister, Jesus asked. When, when they said to him, your brothers, your sister, Mary, uh, 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 your mother, Mary, and your brothers are outside, your natural, biological siblings are outside waiting for you, he asked the question, who's my brother, my father, my sisters? They that do the will of my Father in heaven. Amen? Tell your neighbor, where are you? Now ask them this, where is your brother? I'm not saying where they, in terms of where they are, not coming to the meetings, but more, some are here, but where are you? You're here, you're coming, but where are you located in the realm of the Spirit? What's your weight? What's your levels of obedience? What's your representation? What's your power in the Spirit? What's your stature? Those things concern me seriously. And sometimes I too, when I consider this, I sit down and I pray with burden. I pray weeping before the Lord. I prayed the serious burden for people last night. But has, I said to you last week, are you willing to be burdened by the things that burden God? You know what Nehemiah was only feeling? Nehemiah was feeling personally what God was feeling about Jerusalem in the heavens. God found a man that could touch and, and lock into his heart about an issue and he prayed with fastings for them. Look at the bottom of the page. Um, page 2, I think. Proverbs twenty-five twenty-eight says, Like a city that is broken into and without walls is a man that has got no control over his spirit. Listen carefully. Like a city that is broken into, it says, and without walls is a man that has got no control over his spirit. I taught you in our series on the spiritual man, that your spirit must inform and, and direct your soul, and your soul will instruct your body how to behave. So it's always spirit, soul, body. Spirit must itself be informed by who? By the word of God, which must illumine the spirit. So you can't have spirit informing soul leading body if the spirit itself is wordless. Because the Word is the thing that teaches the Spirit um, governance and regulation and control. This verse says, a spirit, a city that is broken into is like a man who got no control over his spirit. For me that says, no control of your spirit is no word substance in your spirit. The Word is the regulating mechanism by which a man will govern his spirit. No word, no power to lead one's spirit. So you, you, you exhibit a lack of control. Ain't no self-control is one of the hallmarks of the fruit of the spirit. It's one of the fruits. Self-control. To be able to be in control. But I want to encourage you. Ask your neighbor, are your walls broken? By that I mean, have you lost it? Have you lost control? Uh, is your spirit still leading your soul in forming your body? And for me, the question, the real question is, have you lost the priority and the primacy of the word in your life? Is the word still important to you? Well, by, by its light, 
It lights up your spirit so you can rule your soul to lead your body. Hmm? My word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my pathway. I told you that the spirit of, the, of, of, of a man is the lamp of the, of the Lord. Is that light still in your spirit? Right? Is it still said of you, the spirit is willing but the flesh is weak? Have you lost the sense of strong spirit control and regulation of your life from the platform of your spirit over the affairs of your life? Right? Is that still true of you? Or when are you faced then with temptation? You easily give in, no self-control, no checking of yourself. You succumb to situations, succumb to allurements. Is that the frequency of your life? I suggest to you, you're like a city without no walls. And you're, you're vulnerable in the spirit. So I implore you and encourage you to get back to a word for spirit. Amen. Go to the next page quickly. There are two issues, two words that characterize the state of Jerusalem in this broken walled state, burned down gate state. No obedience, no authority, no control of the spirit. Um, and the words are, they are in distress and they are in, re, in reproach. In the Hebrew, the word distress, in the center of your page, it means straits. In a psychological or spiritual sense. It implies a narrowness, kind of restriction placed upon you, kind of suffocation, limitation upon movement, no options available. Hmm? Distress. And I pray that you're not feeling the sense of suffocation where you're feeling there's a narrowness imposed upon you. You're feeling this kind of restriction, and it's even causing you psychological unrest. For if you are in distress, you're not in rest. You are in unrest. And you're not, you're, you're not balanced, you're not sober, there's no peace in your world. If you're lacking sleep in this hour, may the peace of God govern your life. If something is distressing you, because you violated principle. May you come back to the place of obedience and experience the peace of God. This we can't pray for. This you must do something about. This you must... I can't pray for you about these issues. This requires an issue of obedience. Amen? It also was in reproach. And the word reproach literally means shame or disgrace. Right? Are you ashamed... Has shame come to your door? And are you disgraced about an issue? Because of the way in which you regulate and conduct your life. Do you sense, not just about your life, do you sense these two things about the church? Is there reproach? Is there a sense of shame? Is there narrowness? Is there restriction? Is there distress? either upon this corporate group or another, or a brother, or another house, or a family, or a friend, has the state of your brother, who is in reproach and distress, so burdened you, that you yourself set yourself apart to pray and fast for them. Number two, prayer is the primary 
foundational expression of a reformer. Nehemiah is a reformer. First thing reformers do, they become burdened by the burden of the Lord. And they carry that burden in prayer before God. Go to the next page and let's look at the prayer. Before we look at the prayer, I want to encourage you with this. I just slotted this into my notes this morning. These notes are like hot off the press. They were printed just before we came here. Um, The Lord reminded me of this. What spirit do you have? Do you have a spirit of accusation or do you have a spirit of intercession? There are two ministries that take place before the throne of God. One is intercession and one is accusation. The enemy, Satan, is the accuser of the brothers. Look at Revelation 12, 9 and 10. The great dragon was thrown down, etc. Come down. Then I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now salvation and the, and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of His Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down. He who accuses them, where? Before our God, when? Perpetually. One of the names for Satan is the accuser of who? The brothers. But who does Satan use to accuse brothers? Brothers. Brothers accuse brothers. And sometimes you don't realize you're functioning by the influence of an accusing spirit. Right? So let's say, let me use, let's say Nico goes through something. So I either stand, and let's say he's going through something personally. So I either stand with the finger and say, yeah, he deserves it. Good for him. Had it coming because of X, Y, Z. I either adopt a satanic spirit of accusation, and little do I know, I'm being influenced by the accuser of the brethren. Remember when Job sinned? What, is, what did Job's friends say? Hey, there must be some hidden sin in your life. Right? What did you do that, that warranted all of this calamity upon your life? There will always be those that judge you in inaccurately. It's called the spirit of accusation. Do you know what? I forgot to start it in here. I'll start it in and send you the amended note tomorrow morning. The lovely scripture to cross-reference here. It's also from Isaiah 58, the fasting chapter. One of the hindrances to an effective fast, God says, for in the day of your fast, you point the finger. Come on, everyone do this. Do this, just follow me, just do this to someone next to you. <laughs> uh, like, like serious, like, hey, you're the one. But now do this no more. <laughs> no more will I accuse. Huh? Like a windwiper. Wipe the dirt away. Huh? No more will I point the finger. Please, make a note there. Cross-reference Isaiah 58. It says, in the day, if you want your fast to be acceptable, God says, uh, desist from pointing the, the finger. Right? Desist from pointing the finger. Let me just say this. If you are to be a reformer of the church, you cannot come in with judgment and accusation. Yes, there is a whole lot of things wrong. But you have no right to minister to those that you do not love wholeheartedly. Love will be your authorization in the Spirit to minister to a dysfunctional brother or a dysfunctional church. So whenever I come, even in our travels when we go, and we pick up certain inaccuracies, and we have to address certain things, the basis from which we address it is deep love for the people. Right? 
deep love for the people. The other spirit before God's throne is intercession. And look at Romans 8, verse 31. What shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who, is it, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died. Yes, rather he who was raised. Is at the right hand of God who also does what? He also intercedes for us. Jesus is interceding for us at the right hand of the Father. Satan is before the throne of God accusing the brothers. There's these two streams. It's either accusation or it's, yes, I see the weakness, but I'm praying. You can either adopt an accusing posture or you can adopt an intercessory posture before the throne. So tell your neighbor, don't accuse me, pray for me. May I make a request? Pray for me. Well, sometimes you see some freckles and frikies. We're not all perfect. Right? If, it's particularly if you perceive weakness in a father, a spiritual father. A son does what? Doesn't expose the nakedness of his father. Covers it, prays, address it if you have to, out of love, with a desire to restore and put it back. Right? But you always, you know, I, I want us, this church to be known for our great love we have one for the other. Uh, Thamo often says we mustn't be known for great revelation. We must be known as a people of great love. Because knowledge will puff up. Knowledge fuels pride. We must always maintain our humility. And God, when he asks the question to us, where is your brother? Say, yes, I am watching over him. I am his keeper. Tell your neighbor, I am your keeper. I am my brother's keeper. I will not accuse. But if I perceive weakness in Elvis, let's say, my prayer posture will be, I pray, God, break through. Help him overcome. Amen? I put an end to accusation in this house. I put an end by my, my, my pronunciation, the pointing of the finger. Right? I want to encourage that's illegal in this house to start pointing the finger. Stop the talk. Stop the scandal. Don't even joke about things that you don't know nothing about. Stop poking fun at people, stop scandalizing, and you will see how the blessing of the Lord will break forth upon your life. I'm saying, I'm sitting in my corner, Lord, if ever I perceive weakness, error, I must never ever sit in judgment and say, yes, look, look, look. It should burden me like Nehemiah. Oh, the distress, the reproach, their walls are, are down. They have no authority in the realms of the Spirit. I will submit myself before my Father in prayer with fasting and say, Lord, break through. Right? Do you receive this? Tell your neighbor, accusation is now illegal. Accusation is illegal. The first point was personal concern for corporate welfare. The second point was prayer as a primary foundational expression of the reformer. If you are going to reform anything, you're going to be a, have to be a person of strong, passionate, fervent prayer for the thing or for the person or for the church you intend on helping. Prayer is your precursor. Prayer is like the John the Baptist. Prayer is the preparer of the way. 
for you to do apostolic business. Can we look at his prayer? Look at how, how did this guy pray? This is a fascinating prayer that I love. Let's look at the content of the fabric, the tenure of his prayer. Verse 5 of Nehemiah chapter 1. I got some comments in the blocks next to each passage. But let's look at the verses. I said, I beseech you, O Lord God of heavens, the great and the awesome God, you preserve covenant and loving kindness to those who love him and who keeps his commandments. Note his understanding of God. He calls God, you're the God of the heavens. I can just, you know, I can just dramatize this if I have the acting skill, I would have done it. But I don't. I sat. I wept. The man's crying. I fasted for many days. He starts to open his mouth. I beg you, God of the heavens, not God of Jerusalem, not God of the earth. What do the heavens represent? Heaven is his. Throne, earth is his. What is a throne? A throne is a place from which you execute, you govern, you establish decrees and laws. He's appealing to the highest level of God's uh, um, um, executive place from which he executes his purposes, the heavens. I call upon the God of the heavens. You know this phrase is replete throughout the book, the God of the heavens. He uses it quite often. He says the God of the heavens. Tell your neighbor we serve a big God. You know what? I just thought of this this afternoon. It's not in your note, but I should have put it in. I thought this guy is thousands of kilometers away from the city. He's a long way off in Babylon. Prayer has got no distance. He prays for something he's, oh, from which he is far away from, geographically far removed from. And I want to encourage you. The earth today is a very small space, especially in the realm of the Spirit. There is no distance that prayer cannot cover. Amen? When I pray for Matthew and Liam, which I do frequently, because, I mean, they're away, they're in Cape Town. But when I pray, it's like they're right in here. You know, the distance is, is almost non-existent. Amen? Tell your neighbor there's no distance with prayer. Okay? There's no distance with prayer. Look at verse 6. Let your ear be attentive and your eyes open. And hear the prayer of your servant which I am praying before you now, day and night, on behalf of the sons of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of your sons, the sons of Israel, which we have sinned against you. I, not they, I and my father's house have sinned against you. Notice, he says, I pray when? Day and night. That is persistent, it's perpetual, it's consistent, it's, it's, it's regular, it's frequent. It's in fact so frequent, this prayer lasted almost four months, and it, it was regular, it became the fabric and the feature of his life. I want to encourage you, this, this is my, my word of challenge to you. Be immersed in prayer this week, and the forthcoming weeks. Pray whenever you can. Pray frequently. Pray every turn. Pray with great regularity. He said, I pray day and pray, I pray day and night. And notice he's not self-absorbed and self-centered in his prayer. 
In fact, he lumps himself together with the sins of the nation. Right? He says, we have sinned. My father's house and I have sinned before you. Theologians call this identificational repentance. And there's a lot of debate around whether it's legit or not. But I just like how he doesn't divorce himself from their plight. Listen carefully. They are in distress. They are in reproach. But he prays as though he's part of them personally. You know what this is symptomatic of? He's giving evidence of how at one he is with the nation. He's born of his bone. They are flesh of his flesh. Do you know you cannot truly rejoice if your brother is in reproach? You can't truly continue with business as usual if your neighbor is in distress. And when you pray for them, you pray not only for them, but you pray as them. We have sinned. Look upon our corporate. Not look at me personally. We. Notice the we. Our Father. When Jesus taught his disciples to pray, they said, teach us to pray. And the first words that come out of Jesus' mouth, when you pray, say what? Our. Tell your neighbor, our. Hmm? He did not say, he could have said, to this, when you pray, say, my Father. The first principle of prayer is that prayer is not personal. Prayer is not private. When Jesus started teaching about prayer, he immediately baptizes his disciples in the corporate character of prayer. Our Father. Hallowed be thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us. Everyone say us. Today our daily bread, etc., etc. The whole prayer is corporate. Amen. This is going to change your prayer life. Yes? So next time you pray, let's say for your brother that has messed up big time, you don't stand there with the accuser like Satan accused of the brothers, the finger. You say, Lord, posture of intercession like you adopt before the I pray for him. But I pray not for him. I pray as though I am as one with him. Right? We have sinned. We have done wickedly before you. Hear our prayer, O oh God. That will testify to just how conjoined you are, one to the other. Amen. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep, the Bible says. Amen. Remember Israel like Oh, look at uh, verse 7. Verse 8. Remember the word which you commanded your servant Moses saying. Just stop there. I just like this. How this guy prays. Remember I taught you two weeks ago that the word of God will reveal the will of God. And when you pray the will of God, you're guaranteed the outcome to your prayer. Remember? He says, I'm not just going to appeal to God based upon my own. I'm, yes, I'm burdened over this. I'm going to draw reference to his word. And what does he do? Like the watchman on the walls of Jerusalem. He gives God no rest. He reminds God of his word. He says, Lord God, remember the word which you spoke to your servant, Moses. Notice. Saying, and he quotes, he quotes Deuteronomy chapter 30 and some portions of Deuteronomy chapter 29 in the prayer. He says, 
If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the people. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though those of you who have been scattered were um, in the most remotest part of the heavens, I will gather them from there and they will bring them to the place where I have chosen to cause my name to rest. And I want to encourage you. I wrote in the box at the bottom, your, his prayer is fueled and empowered by reference to ancient promises made to Moses. Okay? Um, God promised Moses that if they are start to obey, he will bring them back. And already there was this indication of bringing them back to Jerusalem. So he locks into the intention of God revealed through his word, and he prays the will of God in the word of God, and he is guaranteed an outcome. Okay? He was, Arocha, he was also probably familiar with Moses' pattern of, of intercession. Why do I say this? It was in verse 10. The next verse he says this. They are your servants, your people, whom you redeem by your great power and by your strong arm. He's praying for issues about God's glory. He's saying, God, I'm not praying for my own reputation here. Hey, if anything, Lord, I'm just, I'm just colloquializing now, I'm paraphrasing. He's saying to you, Lord, Lord, if anything, yeah, it's your reputation on the line. Because these people, not my people, these are your people. You redeem them by your great hand. These are your people. So in praying for Jerusalem, he's passionately concerned that God's glory and reputation and image is restored in the earth. Amen? When last did you pray for someone out of deep concern, simply because the way that person is thinking or behaving is giving a false or a wrong perception of the gospel, or of the nature or the character of God. Right? You burn, you say, Lord, this is your child. You saved him. You called him. I pray for him in this respect. Look at verse 11. Oh Lord, I beseech you, may your ear be attentive, watch, I like this, to the prayer of your servant and the prayer of your servants. Who delight to revere your name. Arocha, he was fully conscious that he's not the only one praying. Think about it. Tell your neighbor there are 7,000 others. Hmm? Remember Elijah? Elijah wanted to commit suicide. He said, I'm the only one in Israel. God said, no, there are 7,000 I have in the nation that, that haven't bowed the knee to Baal. Right? And I don't know how Nehemiah but he was fully aware of this fact. There was a consciousness within him. I'm praying, but I'm not the only one burdened by this. There are a whole lot of other servants praying about the same issue. And you know what that is? Everyone say agreement. Agreement in prayer. Matthew 18 teaches that if two or three on earth shall agree as upon touching any one thing, it will be done for them by the Father which is in heaven. I tell you, if any if there was any prayer that God had to answer, it was this man's prayer. Everything was so right about the prayer. Right? It was fueled by fasting. There was serious concern, not just for his own life, his own issues. He was concerned about the reputation of God in the earth, about the state of the people of God at Jerusalem. He's also aware, I'm not the only one passionate about this. There are other sons just like me all over the earth, probably aware of the situation, and they are also praying to you, God. You know, to pray alone, but to have an awareness that I'm not alone in my prayer. 
is powerful. Say that again. I've written this. Nice quote. To pray alone. But to be aware that I'm not alone in my prayer is powerful. To know that there are others agreeing with me. That gives me a sense of confidence. Hey, we're going to move heaven about this issue. Amen? Tell your neighbor, sum for neo with somebody. Sum for neo is the Greek word for agree. <laughs> agree. means to make harmony or sympathy. Who would like to harmonize with me in prayer over the next few days? May I burden you with a burden. If, if ever you must, must leave this house praying for your brothers, it must be today. I know that if I'm up at 4 or 5 in the morning praying, I know that there's at least one other in this congregation burdened by the same burden and praying. Amen? Surely the Lord will hear. Tell you never, it will surely be done for them by the Father which is in heaven. I like the, the, the latter part of verse 11, it says, verse, the B part there, it says, and you know what? He's not just aware that others are praying. He says, oh, by the way, God, make me successful. Today. Tell your neighbor, today. Not next month, not tomorrow. I'm, in other words, I'm going to approach this king today and request him for a leave of absence from my task here in Babylon. I need to go and check it out for myself physically. Give me success, he says, today. Give me success today and grant him passion, compassion before this great man. And he says, now I was the king's cupbearer. I wrote you, it's not good enough to pray about the problem. You must do something about it. Amen? Tell your neighbor it's time for action. Let me ask you, what are you practically doing? Let me just ask this, for example. To build the spirit of family in this family. It's fine to be burdened practic- in prayer about it. But there are times you must become the answer to your own prayer. You say, God, I'm just going to pray and divorced. I'm not going to pray in a divorced fashion, separated from the issue. I pray for it, but also now my praise, God. Give me success. Give me a strategy. Give me a plan where I can become a remedy to the problem myself. Not so? Amen? Last year, from last year, I was encouraging you to cross-pollinate with your lunches and suppers. Every one of you right now, think about a couple, a married couple in this congregation you need to visit. You need to invite over for Sunday lunch or Saturday night supper. Hmm? The more we build the culture and the more we build relationships, you're building family, not so? Right? You're building family. We create a tight unit. Amen? Your next breakthrough could be locked up in your next invitation. That's a prophecy. Hey, who knows? You'll never know what's in the house until you tap into the house. You'll never know what tremendous great resource has been rubbing shoulders with you all along, but you never took the time to tap into its resource. I firmly believe the oil is in the house. Everything you need is in this house. Your next breakthrough could be in your brother. Amen? Take the time. Make the effort. Amen? 
I'm not going to finish this. Time is already gone. You know. Um, we'll conclude this maybe next week because of time. But I really pray that you leave here with a new burden for the house and a new burden to, to fulfill the plans and the purposes of God beyond the immediacy of your own personal issues. Amen? Let me just say this. God gave Nehemiah great success. And we'll see this from next week. How God really blessed this man. Empowered him with leave of absence, with resource, with immunity, with protection. Simply because his heart was right to remedy the situation. When I heard these things, I wept, I mourned, and I fasted for many days, he says. What is your reaction when you hear certain things? He said, when I heard these things, what do you do when you hear certain things? For your reaction will testify to your maturity. Amen. You know, before we hear of the demise of some pastor, maybe the sin of some some person, um, someone a week or two ago said, I don't watch that program because that pastor messed up. I said, no, I do. Because I don't hold his sin against him. He's failed historically, but God has forgiven. So I adopt the view of God on the issue. Hmm? Obviously, you've got to discern the accuracy and the rightness of the repentance, etc. That's very important. Amen? And I want to encourage no more. The, accu- the accusing finger will stop. The intercessory posture must grow in fasting. You are your brother's keeper. I'll ask you the two questions again. I hear the Lord saying to this house, where are you? Adam, where are you? And where is your brother? Where are you located in the realm of spiritual things? And how is your posture in reference to you bring your brother's keeper? You are your brother's keeper. Great blessing is going to follow those that seek first the kingdom. Stop building your panel house and focus on building of, of this house. Do you know I'll share this with you next week? When Nehemiah shared his burden in Nehemiah chapter 2 with a few men. He just shared the burden. And they looked and they heard this. They said, no problem, we're with you. We will arise and we will build. Tell your neighbor, arise and build. Your builders will overtake your devastators. Remember Isaiah 49, that, that portion? The building activity must outweigh the devastating activity. The builders must outrun the devastators. May I appeal to you, let me talk my heart now. I'm your father in the Lord if you regard me as your spiritual father. If you don't regard me as your spiritual father, but you're here as a member, you're welcome. But I am the father of the, the house. right? So we father spiritual sons and people that just visit, or just members that come. I embrace everyone. I will not distinguish between people. I will love you all equally. And I will treat everyone with, with the same. I'll make the similar sacrifices for everyone concern. I have a passion to restore Jerusalem to its former glory. I have an apostolic burden which I believe God has weighted me with. And I believe God is going to give us the resources like he did Nehemiah for the task. He'll give us immunity. But I'm looking for those that will stand with us to say we are with you. Arise and build. I want to encourage you to put your hands to work more than you've ever had before. Don't vacate 
the building initiative. We are building something formidable in terms of God's purposes within the fabric of this corporate context. This local church, I really believe, has got a great destiny in God. But I want to encourage us all, perceive it, heed the things I've taught from God's word. Come on board and build a house. Right now, we're not building a physical wall. He took 52 days to build it, Nehemiah did. It says very clearly. It's less than two months, eh? Two months or 60 days, more or less. 52 days, he completed amidst great opposition from a four-pronged enemy that came against him. Right? He, he built the wall with a trowel in one hand and a sword in the other, building and warding off the attacks to stop the building process. And I want to encourage everyone in the spirit. Let's build the house together. May I give you a prophetic word? If you prioritize the house, God will bless you. God will, God will prosper you. The building process, as Shimon said earlier, stopped for a number of years. God activated two prophets, Zechariah and Haggai, to come on the scene to prophesy, to activate the building. And the Bible says, and the building resumed again in Ezra's time. And I want to encourage you. I sense a prophetic mantle and word coming back to this house. To this house. Get back to the building frequency you once had. Amen? And support all you can and build God's house. You know, more than anything, I would simply ask you, simply obey all the principles in your private world. That for me will be good enough. In your private world, in your personal life, just be an obedient son of God, pleasing your Father in heaven. That's all we ask for. Just by that, you know what you're doing? You're building. You're making sure there's no kink in the wall. Amen? And that the purposes of the Lord will run swiftly concerning us. Amen? May the Lord richly bless you. Lift up your hands to you. I know this, this was a different message tonight. But I really believe it was just the Lord burdening us. God is saying, who will be the Nehemiahs among us? Calling forth for the Nehemiah, as the Lord says. Who will, after listening and hearing and discerning the state of the church, sit down, start business as usual for you. There's a new priority coming to your world. You say, God, I will support the rebuilding process. I will activate obedience in my own life personally. By my example, I will be an activator and a catalyst for obedience within the church. I'll be a restorer of the wall, a restorer of its gates, and its sense of authority. For this I weep, for this I pray, Father. For this I will fast even, present this case before you. Pray that, Lord, that you would, even as we lift up our hands to you, Father, that you will give us success in these endeavors. Even beyond this, give us the facilities we desire. That we might educate those in Zion. Teach people your ways. Restore the truth of doctrine in so many areas. The good hand of our God will surely be upon us too, like it was over Nehemiah. And he consistently declared, the good hand of my God is upon me. We want your good hand upon us. Everyone lift up your hands. Father, we pray forgiveness for where we've inaccurately accused people, poked fun at people, scandalized made light of serious issues in the Spirit, forgive us. Forgive us even of 
of even if we haven't voiced it, if we've thought it, forgive us. Where we should have prayed, but we rather accused, forgive us, Father. Forgive us. Let your mercy wash over us. Not only they have sinned, we like we have sinned. I and my father's house have sinned. We have sinned. Help us to not sit in judgment of anyone. But in our fasting day, we will not point the finger that we might be heard of you, Lord. I pray, O oh God, that we would adopt a, a new posture of prayer. Give us a new burden for prayer. Help us to be so burdened by the things that burden you. Help us to pray fervently without ceasing. In Jesus' mighty name, amen.